1: Welcome to Cars and Culture at the North American International Detroit Auto Show. For the first time, broadcasting on location here in Detroit. And today we're planted right in the middle of Huntington Place, which is the scene for a show that has been international for the last 25 years and has now returned after a three, almost three year uh, hiatus. And we're at the Ford stand talking to Detroit executives about sustainability and pathways to electric vehicles, and even one major debut, which we will discuss later. But first up, we're going to talk sustainability. And Bob Hollycross is vice president of sustainability, environment, and safety engineering. It is great to be with you.
2: Great to be with you, Jason. Thanks for having me.
1: So we're back at a Detroit Auto Show, Bob. Yes. And I know you're a nearly 30-year Ford employee. It must feel pretty good to be uh, back standing on the blue carpet again with... uh, the uh, Blue Oval uh, uh, in the distance here.
2: Absolutely. It is great to be back. And sometimes you don't realize until you actually get back in person and at these events uh, about the excitement that's that's kind of missed by being here in person and, and all the energy that just comes along with a show like this. So it is. It's fantastic. It's
1: become uh, such an important gathering point for the industry, and I think that's probably what we all missed the most, didn't we?
2: Absolutely. I mean, when you think about everything that the industry has done, Uh, you know, just over the last few years alone, even during uh, COVID with all the advancements in technology and the new vehicles that are coming through and everything we have going on. It's such an important time. Seems like we say that every show, but uh, the reality is the pace is moving so fast. And, uh, you know, as an industry, we're just in probably one of the most exciting times uh, for all of us.
1: The pace is moving fast and you're moving fast as it relates to sustainability and the focus on that. And let's start with the goals that we're I guess, crafted first at uh, the UN's Climate Summit. Yes. Those have been laid out, and now we're going to talk about how countries will implement them, how companies will implement yes. them. So what is Ford most focused on?
2: Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a really important point, and, and the COP26 conference last year just reinforced, uh, you know, the critical need that all of us have in terms of getting on this path towards carbon neutrality, reaffirming the goals of the original Paris Climate Agreement, something that Ford Motor Company has been involved in from the beginning. So while it's gotten a lot more attention over the last few years, we've been on this journey really since the beginning of our heritage when you think about some of the the things that Ford has been involved in. But in particular, obviously the move towards electrification is our hugest opportunity because when you look at climate-based emissions, greenhouse gases and other things, the majority of that comes from on-road emissions. And as we know, electric vehicles, when they're on the road and moving, are zero-emission vehicles. But that's not where it 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 stops right there's a whole life cycle in terms of the energy required to power the vehicles uh you know how the materials are harvested and mined and, and processed and manufactured into making electric vehicles um our facilities our manufacturing plants and all the energy and and water and waste that may be generated and how we manage all that so we've we've set our goals very clearly they're not new to us but It's to get to climate neutrality by 2050, which is consistent with the Paris Agreement. uh, But it's really in all aspects. It's, uh, you know, what we produce, how we produce it, where we produce it. And there's just so much going on in all those aspects. So we're really excited about the progress we're making.
1: Six of the world's biggest automakers signed on to the agreement that came out of Glasgow, uh, which was a pledge to phase out gas and diesel-powered vehicles by 2040. Of course, you mentioned the 2050 goals as well. You've admitted that it's a heavy lift. You feel that Ford, though, has a very serious role to play in the impact on the environment. Tell me about that.
2: We do. When you think of the global reach of our brand and our our vehicle footprint and where we operate, not just in light-duty vehicles or passenger cars in the retail segment, but the reach we have with commercial vehicles really being – uh, you know the the leader in that segment, oh, uh, almost half the market when you look at uh, the full suite of, of commercial vehicles too. So, yeah, it's a real important uh, piece for us because we can make such a difference in terms of where these vehicles operate, uh, how they're operated, where where um, you know th- uh, those emissions can be reduced. And so that's why you know our strategy in terms of where we're electrifying first. Uh, is so unique and so keen. It's right in the heart of almost these brands within Ford, like Mustang, like F-Series, like the transit van uh, franchise globally. And that's really how we're going to make a difference with climate change emissions, is getting these vehicles and these actions done at scale, not just for the few.
1: All vehicles under 8,500 gross vehicle weight, 8,500 pounds gross vehicle weight, are covered under the pledge that you have, correct? Yes and the F150 as you mentioned can straddle above and below that that weight mark but it definitely gets into those light duty pickup trucks and as you said it's right at the heart of the market i mean this is absolutely. what people are buying at all times so you've 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 put the stake in the ground you said okay if we're going to go uh, with our biggest brands with our biggest pledge
2: that's where we're going to start absolutely right ranking the biggest difference right out of the gate and it's been fascinating to see the interest and uptake in both, not just the Mustang Mach-E, but the, the F-150 Lightning. And as you mentioned, right, a lot of different ways to configure that vehicle across a number of different types of configurations that customers can, uh, you know, configure the vehicles to. But the other interesting thing is, is we're seeing a whole new series of customers coming into F-150 Lightning that may have never even considered an F-series pickup before, either because of, you know, their concern about emissions and, you know, their, their personal use case. And it's just been incredible to see how this now is appealing to even a whole other segment of customers uh, beyond the traditional uh, F series. Did customers. it surprise
1: you? I, m- I imagine it did. You I mean, know, it, there's always yeah. the truck buyer out there, right? But to to, but to appeal to others who had never considered
2: before. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it, what surprised us was just how quick a lot of those folks uh, came to the the lightning and. You know, even myself, as long as I've been at Ford, this is the first time I've had a, a pickup for an extended period of time. And when you recognize how you can have it all in one package, the utility, uh, the functionality for both cargo and, and uh, you know, people-carrying capacity, and, of course, the, the get-up-and-go fun and excitement that an EV provides, which I don't think people appreciate. It's the same in an F-150 as it is in a Mach-E, that, that torque, that initial launch feel. And sometimes the challenge when we get people in the car is... They want to punch it is the first thing they do. That's well, what the president and that's, did. That's fine. And that is what the president did. And, of course, uh, you know, his, his commentary on it was that, uh, you know, this sucker is quick. And, and I think that kind of sums it up. Yeah, exactly right.
1: Um, w- when it comes to the transformation of EVs and getting EVs on the road, what are the obstacles
2: that have to be overcome? Well, you know, there's a, a number of different aspects for electric vehicles in the whole ecosystem. And, of course, a lot of people, um, you know, look at what is what does it mean to charge these vehicles? You know, what is the range? Uh, making sure, uh, you know, they can meet a, a variety of needs. And, you know, the the fun thing for us is trying to bust some of the, the, the broader myths, I think, that are out there about EVs and some of the skepticism, which, you know, as you get more people into these vehicles and they start to understand more how it can affect them personally, it starts to demystify some of these things like, you know, what if I don't have enough range or what if I can't charge? And I'm not saying that there aren't, you know, things that we still have to overcome, But I think it's going to get a lot easier as more people get into these vehicles and realize, you know, it's not about a gas station on every corner. There's a plug in every home. There's, you know, plugs at work. There's plugs at retail outlets. Yes, we have to look at, you know, specialized solutions for commercial and retail. But that's the beauty of our strategy and what we're doing right now with Lightning and the Transit franchise and our Ford Pro business is crafting those unique solutions for all these customers. And again, the demand has been overwhelming. So, yes, there's obstacles, but I think with the right policies, which we're on our way to implementing. Um, we're going to see these things uh, start to you know, come together the way that we need them to.
1: What other policies do you need to focus on?
2: Well, you know, when you look at what's recently passed um, in the last couple of years with the Transportation Infrastructure Bill and then most recently with the Inflation Reduction Act, it is starting to look at this more holistically. Obviously, we do need uh, improvements in our infrastructure, uh, public charging stations Ford has one of the largest public charging networks uh, available now to our customers, you know, well over 70,000 plugs. But look, there's, there's more that's going to be needed, and, and the infrastructure bill is going to help with that. Um, we do need um, you know, targeted incentives uh, in, uh, for the vehicles um, as well as for the design and development of uh, the technology itself so that we're doing it in this country, that we're, that we're competitive, but that we also diversify things like our supply base. So you know we 're excited about some of the things that have been done. yes, there's more that needs to be done, but you know a lot of in the past, the challenge with this whole equation has, has been somewhat chicken and egg you know well we we, we can 't do vehicles until we have infrastructure and we 're not going to do infrastructure until we have vehicles and But I think the main difference and why we 're over this tipping point now is these vehicles are providing the the full solution it 's not just the zero emissions; it is the performance and the capability and the other key thing that I think people are going to appreciate even more and more is these are all digitally connected products. And the suite of software services that can be offered and the draw to these vehicles is going to reach a whole range of customers that may never even consider whether or not it's a zero-emissions vehicle. But because of the capability and all these other services it can provide, is going to draw them in. So um, I think that's what's making the difference. And, and so now as an auto industry or as Ford, we're going to lead that discussion on what it takes to, you know, complete the, the whole uh, cycle and, and, you know, the policies and everything else that has to be done.
1: Does the industry need to work together to solve some of these things? We've been, industry's worked in silos sure. forever, right? Companies have pursued certain pathways, but does it really need to come together to come up with solutions to solve
2: some of the issues that you just mentioned? Well, certainly in, in, in a lot of aspects. And as you mentioned, I mean, when, you, when it comes to things like infrastructure and the, and the broader things that are, you know, somewhat agnostic, whether, you know, it's a Ford or some other manufacturer uh, vehicle, uh, there are there are aspects of that. So when it comes to, you know, some of the foundational things like the ability to have, uh, you know, raw material uh, processing in the U.S., battery manufacturing capacity, um, you know, some of the incentive-based structures, uh, which while, you know, somewhat vehicle-to-vehicle dependent, Um, help create and send a signal right into the industry that these investments we're making are not only secured by what we know is going to be a very competitive market and it's going to be consumer driven but it also helps secure um, you know the long-term equation that you know as we get into 2030 and 2050 and if we want to hit some of these climate goals which we are all in on it is going to take all these things coming together. But it won't be because we don't have the technology or the excitement in the vehicle side. So, yes, we do need to continue to come together.
1: Raw materials are a big topic these days because of the rising costs of various commodities. What needs to happen in order to make sure that there's a a viability to get to um, the the, the sort of technology that you need to implement into vehicles based on those raw materials.
2: Yes, it's a, it's a real critical piece of the equation. And it's a journey that we've been on, uh, you know, for a number of years now as we've been advancing our strategy. And I think the key thing is there has to be a diversity of supply of those materials. So we know there are certain places in the world where most of those materials are harvested today. But we know that they exist in in many other parts, too, whether it's in, you know, here in North America or or elsewhere. So we have to look at some of the traditional policies and see what needs to be modernized so that we can do responsible, uh, you know, mining and processing and manufacturing, you know, here in the U.S. as well as we're doing uh, abroad. And, you know, making sure that it's done in a responsible way, which we can do um you know we've we, as a as a global manufacturer doing business and, and manufacturing in a number of different locations are are some of our best practices on how you know we you know, reduce emissions, how we minimize waste, the careful use of water so that we're not in, in any areas using potable or drinking water and manufacturing to the least extent possible. We have experience in industrialization, something, you know, some of the, the startups and others would probably be, you know, happy to have uh, in terms of of that aspect of our legacy. Um, but I think there's a lot of opportunity for that, and um, you know, we're, we're excited uh, about the future. We've secured a lot of that material in the short term for our targets that we're looking at by the end of 2023 to be able to deliver over 600,000 electric vehicles globally on our way to a 2 million unit uh, capacity by 2026. And yeah, as we've said, as we get out to 2030 and start to look at you know around even it being half of our, our new sales fleet or, or beyond by 2040 to hit these climate goals, we're going to be ready. And so we got to get ahead of this curve on, on materials and supply.
1: And Bob, your vision uh, and Ford's vision is actually broader than just vehicles that are on the road. You
2: you're thinking of the communities that you're involved with as well. Absolutely. How, how are you trying to affect change there? So you know, obviously the you know what we build is is a, makes a big impact, right? As we talked about with the emissions of, of vehicles on the road, uh, where we build it uh, in terms of uh, our manufacturing facilities and some of the new ones we're standing up is key. So when it comes to the communities where, you know, manufacturing is taking place, what's happening in Tennessee and Kentucky right now as we start to build out Blue Oval City and uh, the battery uh, plants in Kentucky, it's such a huge opportunity for for jobs and skilling and, you know, what, what this is going to mean for these communities. But also when you think about Where our vehicles operate, you know, especially commercial vehicles, sometimes in underserved areas around, you know, ports or or other areas that traditionally have, you know, significant air quality challenges, where we place these vehicles is going to have a big opportunity as well. Equitable access right traditionally as, as new technologies like EVs come out you know they're expensive they're, they're, the, the costs are higher and so the accessibility for you know uh, lower income or, or middle income families and individuals can be more of a challenge. We need to have, you know, a fair set of policies that help encourage those consumers to be able to get into these vehicles. And then as we get that first generation of vehicles out there, what does the, the used car market look like for electric vehicles? And how do we look at, you know, the second life of, of batteries? Reuse of batteries, Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So whether it's, you know, what we can do with batteries to extract the materials uh, from them where they may not still be able to be used uh, initially on the road. We can put that into new battery development. That's going to help reduce cost. It's a more sustainable way to, to develop batteries longer term. We're excited about that. But then you have this opportunity because of, you know, batteries' durability and what they can provide to have this, the secondary market for vehicles. And that will help with the affordability equation. So, uh, you know, whether it's affordability, uh, its impact on air quality and the overall environment in underserved communities, but also the opportunity for training and jobs, um, you know, in these communities where we're, we're standing up new facilities and, and revamping other ones, uh, it just presents a huge opportunity from the community standpoint. And that's something Ford has always stood for. I mean, it's it's not just about, you know, the vehicles and the business side. It is, you know, uh, sounding a bit altruistic about making people's lives better. When you have a brand like Ford that has the reach it does, we see that as not just our, our legacy, but our obligation, uh, you know, into the future for the next hundred years which obviously we intend to be around
1: what does it mean for the worker of the future because there, there has been some concern that there will be fewer jobs related to uh ev production increased ev production but I'm guessing that that you're, you'll focus on on reskilling and a completely new workforce
2: as well, or retraining. Sure, reskilling is is a is a piece of it for sure, and yes, I mean as we look at this longer term and understand, you know, what does it really take to manufacture electric vehicles and batteries, and you know, uh, more automation and, and what that means for a transitioning workforce, where in some aspects fewer workers may be required. But in the in the near and medium term, as we're seeing this opportunity for growth, both in electrification and on the Ford uh, blue side of our business, where you know we're continuing to produce these exciting vehicles like the all new Mustang that's going to be debuted tonight in the Bronco franchise, and as those vehicles uh, you know continue to develop, that's providing opportunity for growth, and you know obviously the investments that we've made uh, in our facilities here in Michigan and in Kansas City and. Uh, Kentucky and elsewhere, where, you know, we're trying to meet uh, a large demand overall. Uh, But we have, we've invested significantly in, you know, uh, new skilling for workers that are going to, you know, work in these new plants that are building electric vehicles over a $500 million investment, uh, standing up uh, actual training facilities in areas like Texas and elsewhere. To really draw in folks and and try to get ahead of that, uh, it's such an exciting time for them.
1: There was a lot of big news made earlier this year about the separation of the company to some extent, in that it, what you just referenced, uh, yes. you know, going with Ford Blue, going with um, yeah, Model, e, uh, Model and, e, and Ford Pro uh, and yeah, sure. exactly. Explain that for for uh, listeners who may not understand what that means, maybe even at
2: the consumer level. Yeah, you know, it the it in in terms of the the business i think what we saw pretty quickly and you know this is something that that jim farley's been progressing um you know even even before the 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 formal transition to these business units when we have so many people trying to do so many different things the challenge around you know how do you move faster how do you be more nimble you know how do you change the culture at a company you know like Ford to you know to to even get further ahead and and kind of set people free in some aspects to, to, be able to work on these things. Um, you know, I think it became pretty clear what was needed. And so, uh, the exciting part is, is whether it's the model E team working on all these great electrified products and the ones of the future or the Ford blue team working on the traditional, uh, products like Bronco and F series and Mustang and Explorer and others, there's a lot that's moving in terms of opportunity for growth in both sides. So, you know, I I think in some aspects it was described, oh, is this a separation of the future from the past? And it's, it's anything but that. It is an opportunity to get people really focused in the areas they need to be, not over encumber them with having to deliver everything at all time. And the benefit for the consumer is they're going to continue to see you know, improved quality, uh, more excitement in their vehicles, the expertise dedicated to really serving them and their needs on an individual basis rather than one person or one team trying to do everything for all customers. So it's a real exciting time, and um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's growing uh, uh, that has to happen within the company to, to get after that, but I think we're starting to see the benefits already on what it's allowing the teams to do.
1: In your nearly 30 years working with the company, we've all said that the era that we're living in is the point of greatest change. Yes. But I would imagine that you would
2: say that this actually is the time of greatest <laughs> change. Is that correct? I think it is, and you know, you always catch yourself and say, "Well, are we just saying the same thing every few years?" Right. But uh, the we kind of a rolling
1: forecast, <laughs> exactly it is.
2: But you know, having worked in kind of the area of you know environmental policy and and, and uh, you know regulatory policy over the last you know nearly thirty years. There has never been a change like this. I mean, we're having to look at things that we never considered, like, you know, how vehicles are tested for emissions. Um, What other aspects of the vehicle should we be looking at? How do we measure things like energy consumption outside of miles per gallon? And so there's a a whole revamp of everything from the way these vehicles are manufactured to, you know, the way vehicles are tested and, and everything else that comes with that. So um but as you pointed out earlier Jason it's not just about the vehicles it is this broader ecosystem and you know now auto companies and ford in particular are working with utilities and you know energy services companies and stretching these new muscles and partnerships in ways i, I know we haven't done in at least the last you know 30 years that i've been with the company and that's presenting all kinds of exciting opportunity uh, for the future, you know, in addition to just the ongoing excitement of the products, and
1: not to put too fine of a point on it, but you and Bill Ford, who's been on this program and talked about it yes. as well, have yes. said that
2: EVs are the refounding of the company. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you know, when we kind of said it that way, it it gave us all a moment of pause to say that really is what's happening here. This is literally a refounding of the company. When you think about the opportunity we have. And, you know, we've obviously been around for, you know, well over 100 years and and intend to be that uh, way for the next 100 or more. But when it touches all aspects of, you know, the workforce, the manufacturing footprint, the vehicle development, uh, you know, the communities in we operate, it is the opportunity to have the same kind of magnitude and transition that Henry Ford did when he put the world on wheels. Um, and, you know, some of these discussions we're having that we talked about earlier about whether it's obstacles or things that we have to do with infrastructure, you know they had these same conversations 100 years ago moving from, you know, horse-driven carriages to, to automobiles about, you know, where's the, the, the energy going to come from there and, you know, how are we going to have roads that are reliable and all these things. We're having those same conversations on yeah. the infrastructure today. Yeah, we are.
1: And your area and, and the areas that you're most concerned about stretch from – climate change to water to materials to human rights yes to access uh, and one of the um, goals that the company has stated is to drive human progress by providing mobility and accessibility for all
2: and if that doesn't say henry ford i don't know what does couldn't agree more when we say all or every person that is exactly what we mean because if if we're if we're really honoring our heritage and our legacy, that's going to be how our success is measured. What kind of a difference did we make in people's lives for the long haul? How do we sustain that? And I mean, that's ultimately the definition of sustainability, right? It's about what you're doing today that enables you to, you know, deliver what customers and society needs, but how do you do it in a way that preserves the ability to do it for people in the future? And that is the heritage of Ford. And and Bill Ford's been on that journey since, you know, he's, he's not only just been a part of the company, but all his life, he was well ahead of the curve on this. And, you know, when we published our first sustainability report over 20 years ago, people within our own company and and people in the industry thought, you know, what are they doing? They're crazy. You know, you you go out there and you're, 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 you're kind of poking the bear, so to speak. But when it comes to transparency and a lot of the discussion at that time was like, look, you know, if we have no place else to go, but up, why wouldn't we take advantage of this opportunity to show the world what a difference that we can make year over year? And, you know, that becomes a differentiator for us as well. In this space around climate change and, you know, emissions and environment, there is a lot of, you know, overarching claims out there and these, these broad targets, which is all good. We all want to have, you know, high ambitious goals. But if you can't show you're making progress year over year, if you can't be transparent about it, it's hollow. And so that's something that we've been really proud of and been recognized for is the transparency in our reporting, you know, recognizing where we have opportunities, um, and you know, making sure we're measuring in an objective way so people uh, in our stakeholders, our shareholders, our customers can measure that. Because more and more, people are demanding that of not just you know, the, the industries for the, the products they buy, but where they're investing their money. Um, so we're having those conversations as well with, uh, you know, investors and, and uh, you know, a whole range of stakeholders that are not only asking Ford how they're doing, but they're also asking us how can they, you know, stand up their own sustainability operating system. And, and that's been really exciting for our team at Ford.
1: Well, and and just a final thing, uh, just to put, put it on the record, Bill Ford was out talking about these things long before there was a gentleman with a certain... Um, uh, automaker that started with a T, uh, <laughs> long before we were talking about Elon yes, Musk.
2: Yes, uh, Bill was
1: talking about that stuff as well. He yeah. was, and yeah. you know,
2: Bill will be the first one to tell you. You know, he was told by others in the company to stop talking about it. Um, but yeah, when he did say that, yeah, yeah, and I mean, but when you look at, um, and I think part of what really launched us uh, and accelerated our efforts is when Bill took on the project at the Rouge to transform that whole complex uh, into a green manufacturing operation at a time when people would have thought, you know, shouldn't the Rouge really be, you know, even taken down. It was just a huge, uh, you know, moment of pride for the company and showed if we can do this, if we can do that kind of moonshot, the sky's the limit. And and that's really what it's been, you know, these last 20 plus years.
1: Enjoy your time at the Detroit Auto Show and Absolutely. the launch of a certain iconic brand that yes. will occur a little later on. But uh, it is wonderful to have you on Cars and Culture. You are defining the culture of the future in all of the sustainability activities that you're doing. So, Bob Holycross, thank you so much.
2: Jason, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate it.
1: We continue our conversations at the Detroit Auto Show, on the floor of the Detroit Auto Show at the Ford Stand, and I would argue at the epicenter of all the activity that's going on with this year's show, because the man sitting to my right is Jim Owens, the Mustang Marketing Manager, and we say Mustang, and you have to say brand new reveal, which is what occurred last night. How are you, Jim?
3: I'm doing good, and thank you so much for having me on. I you know, love to talk about the Mustang and the launch of the seventh generation that we did. Um, we cannot be more pleased. Um, you know, it's about our enthusiasts. It really is, and, and we are so excited to have you know, not only the media and the press, but some of our owners down who came across the country to drive in and be part of it. It was an exceptional experience.
1: So unbelievably, the Mustang is almost 60 years old. Almost
3: sixty. April seventeenth, nineteen sixty-four. New York World's Fair was unveiled. Uh, Continuous longest continuous running nameplate sports car in the United States. Um, Thank you, Corvette, for forgetting a model year. Um, (laughs) But they don't. They actually in the premium sports car segment. But yeah, we've had you know this six generations up until this reveal, and this is the reveal of that seventh generation Mustang. And we can't tell you how excited we are and how excited our Mustang owners and fans are about it. Tell me about it. So this vehicle um, is first when you're when the design team, like a lot of the Mustang team, um, we've all been around Mustangs for a while. Um, I've done Gen 4, Gen 5, Gen 6 and Gen 7. Um, so when you have first the design, um, it has to be unmistakably Mustang. It has to look fast standing still, Um, but then it has to be that future looking for this next generation, the seventh generation of Mustang owners. And the design team hit it spot on. Um, That back end sitting so low, um, looking powerful. Um, Everybody's extremely excited about how it looks, but it's not just about how it looks. Um, there's a lot to that, that, you know, if you want to get into it, let's get into it. So, I mean, the heart and soul of a Mustang, um, is it's, you know, a powertrain, if you will. Um, and on the coupes, on the coupe and convertible, uh, it has an all new 2.3 liter EcoBoost. That'll be more powerful and more efficient and the fourth generation five liter coyote motor that will be the highest horsepower Mustang GT we have ever done. What's the rating? Well, we haven't gotten the ratings yet, right? We're going through our certifications and processes. And as we get closer to the actual launch of it, we'll have the number. Um, We are uh, just, we know it will be the highest horsepower version, which makes a lot of our Mustang, you know, family and friends extremely excited. Um, And so we are truly excited about that Mustang opportunity.
1: Given the fact that you are unveiling something that's going to have as much power and, and set that kind of benchmark, you're, you're entering into Mustang Holy Grail territory, right? <laughs> but isn't it great? We're talking sports cars. We're talk- And I'll say this. Maybe you can't. But an internal combustion engine sports car. I mean, I, a lot of people out there are pretty excited about that, Jim.
3: We are so proud. We yeah. have expanded the Mustang family, right? The Mustang Mach E. And if you haven't driven it yet, you should. I like have, the it's great. The GT Performance Package. It's over 480 horsepower equivalent. It's faster, 0 to 60 than my current Shelby GT500. <laughs> um, it, it has Magna Ride suspension. It has uh, Brembo brakes. Like, those aren't things that you do for electrification to extend the range. Those are things that you you do to a true mustang to make it that enjoyable exciting exhilarating experience that vacation you take every day and when we were able to do that and expand the mustang family while others have said that they might be leaving the internal combustion engine space we're proud that we can still be able to deliver to those customers both the internal engine the internal combustion engine mustang and the new two three and the five liter as well as the Mustang Mach-E to our customers who we know you know might appreciate both tastes.
1: Yeah, there are others getting out of the space. Um, uh, you know, Camaros somewhat in doubt, Challengers in doubt. I mean, th- those those models have have a question mark around their you know the the, the more immediate future. You're going, we're all in. <laughs> We are all in on this.
3: We are really proud, and we are all in on it. On the seventh generation of Mustang, you know, you have more than 10 million Mustangs that have been sold and produced. Um, We have – We sell the car on six of the seven continents. Um, We're the best-selling sports coupe globally for the last seven years. Um, We have clubs on six of the seven continents, and we didn't start selling the Mustang globally as Ford until 2015 model year. So that means people were bringing those cars in themselves, Um, and we are so glad that not only with the Mustang Mach-E, and if you want to choose the electric version of it, or the new Gen 7 Mustang internal combustion engine, you can choose that as a Mustang fan, and we're so excited
1: about it. What else do you like about the vehicle? Okay, so, let's, I mean, let's, I, get, into your favorite let's stuff. get into, okay, yeah.
3: you know, it's like um, I have three daughters and you never say who's your favorite daughter, right? <laughs> um, but in my Mustangs that I've been working on, uh, my personal favorite is, you know, notwithstanding the time I spent with Carol, um, is the 71 Mach 1, blue with silver. Um, favorite thing on this generation of Mustang um, is how internal in the cockpit you feel different this time. Um, literally I can't normally sit in a Mustang without turning on the engine. Like, you know, if I'm not turning on the engine in the first five or 10 minutes, you know, that something's, you know, something's obviously going wrong in this case with that new technology inspired cockpit, I spent an hour, like about 50 minutes, Literally playing with the technology to personalize the performance to my taste. And those customers who will be buying the 7th generation will be able to do it to theirs. Um, We are using Unreal game technology. So the 7th generation Mustang customer, you know, we expect to be a little bit, you know, late millennial, early Gen Z. They've grown up on things like Forza and, you know, personalizing their iPhones and their Androids. Gamers, playing Rocket League, right, where they're creating their games. our interior now uses the same engine that is actually recreating those vehicles on the screens while you're sitting there so that you can see when you want to update your suspension or change your, or your, change your steering effort or change your exhaust mode. It is graphically done on the largest console that wraps around you that actually generates that car there that you can customize and personalize it. Um, You know, I love doing a smoky burnout. I love going to the road (laughs) courses, you know, going out. Um, But that is one of the things that really impressed me about this car and I think is going to impress the seventh generation owners.
1: Did you consult the gaming industry to say, what would you like? I mean, how did you reach that kind of so, conclusion? So
3: our, our engineers, Craig Sandevig who did the interior, and he's worked on three, four generations of Mustang, um, went with the gaming community and um, using the Unreal Engine and then designed it themselves inside. Um, and we're really, really happy uh, and blown away, quite frankly. Um, the focus group stuff that we did, you know, there's a uh, from, you know, the four-year-old to the 100-year-old right mm. finds this technology captivating and then as it relates to Mustang it's how you can personalize it which is what you know Mustangs about
1: yeah for sure and Jim Farley CEO of Ford was out early teasing this by saying you know basically return of the manual <laughs> save the manual. save the manual there you go. that's yeah. what it was save yeah the, the stm we did right. the
3: hashtag on that on the owner's gift for the focus rs on the bottom of it we gave them a shifter every customer had a shifter and it had the stm logo on it yeah part of them part of the mustang experience is that manual transmission thank um, god it, yeah it's available <laughs> on the mustang gt Um, It is also available on our Dark Horse, which is our first new entry in there that everybody got to see last night as a surprise. And that has the Tremec 6-speed 3160 in it. Um, You still can engage with your, you know, not going to be texting and driving when you have that manual transmission in your hand, (laughs) um, that you get to still engage with the manual transmission. And for those customers who still want the performance, our 10R80, uh, the calibration that we've used is it, it, it doesn't learn. I can't say it learns, but it adapts to the to the handling so that if you're taking it on the racetrack, or if you're driving it down the street, it's going to shift the way you want to. So we're really excited about that.
1: Wow, God, I can't wait to drive one. Let's talk about the marketing and what you're going to do to push it out into the world. What do, you, what do you want to show the world? How do you want to show the world that Mustang is here? Because um, so you, you can have a lot of fun, yeah, I'm guessing. Yeah, we,
3: we, we always have a lot of fun. Yeah. First, it's about our owners. You know, we have an extremely loyal customer base. Um, and then it's about the future customers in there. Um, one of the technologies that you've put, we've put into the car... And it'll demonstrate it's you know that that the Mustang team gets it. You mentioned Jim Farley; he races Mustangs on the yes. weekends, right? Yeah, he does. Uh, Bill Ford actually has his racing license from the Ford Performance Racing School and and modifies his own Mustangs. Um, but one of the things that we think is going to be really cool that we can't wait, and it'll it'll demonstrate that we're not just building a car or a vehicle to get you from point A to point B. Um, we have a drift break. In the car okay. from the factory. <laughs> now, we developed it with Vaughn. That's Vaughan. a first. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And it's <laughs> Vaughn getting and It's track use only. It's in the track mode. But what it does is if you've seen drifting, right, where you're out yep. throwing out, hanging out the back end. You know, Vaughn getting juniors, the current world champion in it. Um, he worked with our engineers to develop it that actually – has the novice, when you're off-road, like you're on a, a track, you know, not on public highway, actually get to pop in and it will induce you drifting? And as you learn, you can actually dial up the settings to actually oh. be a competition level. Wow. Now, wow. I, not the thing that you're going to put in,
1: in... Downtown Detroit, in, probably No, no, no <laughs>
3: track use only. Let me say, it. I to make sure track use only. But those are the type of things I can imagine Vaughn at an event... With one of these cars and bringing in customers from, you know, the 16-year-old all the way to the 80-year-old and teaching them how to drift and let that go virally, that would be a good way for us to be able to demonstrate to this next generation of Mustang customers that we get it.
1: Beautiful. Wow. God, it's exciting. Carol Shelby would have been proud, wouldn't he, Jim? He would have been proud of this car. And you um, worked for him.
3: Yeah, I have had I've been blessed. I've spent, you know, the last twenty plus years working on performance in Mustang and part of that time I went and left Ford and went to work for Carroll. Um, it was oh seven through two thousand eleven. Um, where we were developing the KR and the Shelby GT and the Shelby GTH, the rental rent racer cars. Um, he was always into the technology that would help improve performance. And the engineering men and women at Ford have leveraged that technology to increase the performance of a vehicle in a way that I know would make him smile.
1: Well. Wow. You got any good Carroll Shelby stories? No, too
3: many of them. <laughs> um, yeah, he, he was just such. One of my favorite ones is, you know, when I first went over to start working for him. Um, and when people ask me my Mustang or Shelby story, this is one of them. Um, so we're out at the test track at Las Vegas Motor Speedway's outside road course. And Carol, at the end of his life, was suffering from severe macular degeneration. Um, he was at one point in time the oldest living dual transplant recipient on the planet with a replacement heart and kidney, and he didn't lead a choir boy's life. Um, so we're out there testing cars, and he goes and he goes to me and he's like, "All right," he goes, "Jimmy, get over there on that turn one apex, stand right at the apex, and tell me how close my tires coming to it." And I'm like, "What?" I'm <laughs> like, "Wait a minute, I know that you know you're not the driver." He comes in and. I and literally had to stand there as he was blowing by, you know, at triple digits to get into the turn. It's like a 60 degree right hand turn. And I'm sitting there telling him how far away he is from the apex. That's the type of character. And you survived. And I survived and loved here. it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, he was just it, it mentioned his uh, dual transplant with the Carroll Shelby Foundation that that invests in that. He did give back um, and still continues to give back today. Um, Aaron Shelby, his grandson, um, is auctioning off cars. Um, We did the KR um, at Barrett-Jackson in January to benefit the Carroll Shelby Foundation and JDRF. Um, So, you know, not only was he, you know, the only human being that won as a driver, as a team owner and as a manufacturer, um, won Le Mans, he was somebody who took that and actually gave back.
1: Yeah, amazing. Wow, we miss him. How much input did you get from Mustang owners on the uh, on the seventh version? Uh, I mean, so
3: Mustang owners are a key piece of it, right? Sure. And well, they were at the Stampede. They were at the Stampede. You, you know, 1,000 Mustang plus coming from world headquarters down to Detroit and Hart Plaza to engage them in the reveal of the seventh generation. Um, we do a lot of focus group and research. Um, And the technology I was talking to you about, um, it was really cool. We brought in different audiences you know mustang's not a demographic right it's a mindset like mm. if you're in mustang yep. and so i brought a bunch of people in and and showed them not only the interior but the graphics and how to work with it and you know the the, the boomer crowd right um, yep. you know the, the the baby boom crowd who's a you know a large still a large portion of it uh thought that the technology was good one guy said i think i could launch a missile from this right on <laughs> like, the technology um and then the younger audiences appreciated how we were doing the displays to personalize their performance. Um, so we're always, you know, uh, the team also attends the events. Like I go to 20-plus Mustang events a year and probably would do it. Even yeah, I see I you all working. over the place. Yeah. And, and, yeah. No, and, you are. You're, and, you're everywhere. And, but our engineers do, like Ed Krenz, who's the chief nameplate engineer, Carl Whitman on the Ford Performance side. You know, he brings his engineering teams to those events and sits and talks with these customers um, to get feedback on what we're developing in the future, you know, because we'll have our 2021 Mach 1, you know, standing there and talk around it and listening and getting that feedback on what they want. And the team, Ed Krenz and his team were able to deliver that from a performance standpoint on the seventh generation.
1: I would imagine they told you in all of this talk, if you'll forgive me, of EVs, that they told you, we have a passion for this kind of car still. Please don't take it away.
3: Yeah, and, and, and we're really proud of the fact that we offer both. Right. Right? Um, and and th- that we plan to do that. Like, you know, yeah. behind us here in the stage, you have the Lightning that they can drive, the F-150 Lightning. We have the E-Transit. We have the Mustang Mach-E um, and, and its GT version and performance pack. Um, but, yes, the customers, we know our customers still want that internal combustion engine, and we are balancing it and expanding the Corral and the family to include them. And we're so proud that we're launching an all-new 2.3-liter and a fourth-generation Coyote 5-liter. So we meet all of the customers' expectations that are out there.
1: Wonderful. Um, Steve. A few years ago at this show, the last time that I think we were at this show, Steve McQueen's granddaughter was here. Do I have that right? Yeah. And, Um, and,
3: and, And his son. And his son. Well, his son was, actually, his son was at Barrett-Jackson because Barrett-Jackson, right. and back when we did the auto show in January, they were the same weekends. Um, yeah, so his uh, granddaughter was here, and then we had a Chad out at Barrett-Jackson where we auctioned off the first bullet. Right. Um, where or The first one of this generation, right? Correct. We did 01, 07, 9, 08, right? Um, the first one of this one that donated money to the house – Remember Steve McQueen was you know raised in a children's home, yes, and we raised more than four hundred thousand dollars selling that car um, for the home that steve mcQueen. Grew up in. But, yeah, so the, the bullet, the scenes there. And, you know, we, we do the bullet runs, you know, occasionally. But it was nice to have the McQueen family there with us when we did I it. I
1: imagine they would be proud of this achievement as well.
3: Yeah. I mean, so you, you have a lot of, you know, Mustang has been in more than 5,000 movies. Is that right? And wow. videos and, and, and songs. And there's a lot of people. I mean, you know, the, the whole John Wick series. Now, that's, Mustang's not part of that, but he drives a Mustang in the John Wick series right like that that whole thing it it is an icon um, and it a lot of people I think who love Mustang who are icons themselves recognize that the seventh generation Mustang is delivering on that iconic status.
1: So when you start in this journey to recreate it that feels like such a heavy crown you're wearing, and uh, the the weight is on <laughs> you. I, I, I could I could I could feel you getting lighter as as the unveiling is now out. Right? Yes.
3: I mean. Um yeah, it is a responsibility because um, you know uh, Jim Farley used to say you know you have to be strong enough in your brand to let your customers you know own the brand. Well, the Mustang folks, you know, the, there are people who I go to events with, who literally tattoo Mustangs on their body (laughs) that have an invested interest in how we do. And given the reaction that we've gotten from this car, we think we've done them proud.
1: Well, I, you, you have done them extremely proud. I, the cars and coffee will be very exciting when this launches.
3: Uh, can, can I tell you something? I have yes. to you. so there, I told you about the Drift Stick, which is pretty cool. There's something else that we put into this car. And you talk about cars and coffee. And, you know, people express themselves differently, right? They can go to drifting events. They can go to cars and coffee, drag ships, whatever. For the car show crowd and the cars and coffee crowd, we now have in there remote revving, <laughs> so, right. so, so you can literally walk up with your friends, not only start it with your key fob, but then put it through a remote revving cycle that takes it up through its RPMs, takes it down if you have the, the exhaust valve on it. Opens up the exhaust valve um, that can really impress your friends for the cars and coffee. Again, not something that you need from point A to point B, but something Mustang owners would love and enjoy.
1: Where was this when I was sixteen? <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah, when we I had to was, wait for the seventh generation to get their auto, the uh, remote, remote revving. revving on there, <laughs>
3: which is uh, which is cool. Yeah, see, you know, it's the you know twenty twenty four model year equivalent of when we used to take our clothes pins and the cards and put them into your spokes on. <laughs> (laughs) your bicycle that's
1: right (laughs) well jim owens mustang marketing manager you have done an amazing job congratulations the baby has been delivered we have named it the seventh generation (laughs) (laughs) and
3: and the entire mustang team you know from Joel and Chris, who are led the design of it, and Ed Krenz, who led the engineering side of it, and you know the men and women of the UAW at Flat Rock. Um, we're all proud to be able to deliver this for the customers. Um, the folks at Flat Rock Assembly Plant, um, back in the, it was Gen 5, um, we actually put up a billboard on the side of the Flat Rock Assembly Plant. I remember that. That said, we love to take our work home with us. <laughs> right? like, like in the convertible in the month. Mustang. So for all of those folks who have put so much time and effort into this, we cannot wait to get it in the hands of the customers who love it.
1: Well, it's funny. I mean, this show is called Cars and Culture, and there couldn't be a more cultural icon than the Mustang. So very fitting. Uh-huh. Congratulations, Jim. Thanks
3: so much for having us on here. We can't wait to hand you a set of keys when we when we launch the car in the summer of 2023 as a 24 model year.
1: We'll do a show from the seat of the Mustang next time. <laughs> and we
3: can teach you how to drift. We'll bring Vaughn bon in <laughs> there and teach go. you how to drift. <laughs> awesome job.
1: Thank you, Jim. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it.